And so, Holy Father, here we are. The reminders of what you did for us 2,000 years ago. All around us. One more lingering moment in worship with your word. Dear God, of, of all subjects, may this one be as clear as you can make it, given what you have to work with. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Probably the most celebrated case this Christmas season is the trial of Scott Peterson. Reflecting on that, I, I, I want to ask a question right here at the outside. Will the final judgment be like the jury in the Scott Peterson case? If you're following it at all, you know about a week ago, the mother of Lacey Peterson sat in that hushed courtroom and wept and screamed invectives at Scott Peterson over the death of her daughter and their unborn baby boy. That was a week ago. This week, Scott Peterson's mother comes into the same courtroom and weeps before the same jury pleading for her, her boy's life. Two mothers begging for diametrically opposite judgments in that courtroom. Is that the way it's going to be in the final judgment? One voice furious, screaming for our execution, and the other voice heavy with tears, pleading that we might be spared. And by the way, in the final judgment, does it all come down to the final verdict. Some stomach-churning, nerve-wracking, nail-biter right down to the last minute. Am I guilty? Am I not? Am I lost? Am I saved? Which mother will the jury believe? Open your Bible, please, to the book of Romans. One last time, in this book, this semester... Romans chapter 3, just two lines, a single sentence, just two lines. Romans chapter 3, read along with me. I'm in, uh, once again, I'm in the New King James Version. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's the translation that's in the pew rack right in front of you just now. Romans chapter 3, just two lines, one sentence. Let's pick it up in verse 23, please. Romans 3:23. for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You say, what does that one sentence have to do with whether or not the final judgment comes down to the final verdict? It has everything to do with it. Because what we have just read declares... Now, hold on. The final judgment does not come down to the verdict at the end, but rather the verdict at the beginning. That point is so crucial, I wish you'd write it down in uh, the study guide that's in your worship bulletin today. Pull that new study guide out, please. Ushers, thank you for getting the, uh, the study guides to those who might have gotten in without a worship bulletin. I need you to have this. This is a critical teaching. 
And we must get to the heart of it. Those of you watching on television right now, let me put the website on the screen for you. www. That's our website. www.pmchurch.tv If you go to that website, click onto this series, Wine and Milk. This would be part nine, our series from the book of Romans. And today's message, A Universe All. A Universe All Christmas. Click onto that title and you'll get the same study guide we're about to plunge into together. The point... A moment ago is crucial. Would you please write it down in your study guide? The final judgment doesn't come down to the verdict at the end, but rather the verdict right down the end. The final judgment doesn't come down to the verdict at the end, but rather the verdict. Write it in, please. At the beginning. Let's spend a moment unpacking this stunning truth. Go back to, uh, we'll be here the whole time, Romans uh, 3, go back to verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, i.e., we are all judgment bound. We are as guilty as sin. We are as guilty as Scott Peterson himself. Our fingerprints are all over the murder weapon. All of us, from Mother Teresa to Saddam Hussein, to you and me, all of us, guilty. However... And this is a huge, however, there is verse 24. Let's get a run at it. Verse 23 again. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all, because that's the subject. The, the sentence is still going, so the subject is understood. And all being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Would you write it down, please? All have sinned. Write that in. All have sinned, but all are justified. And what does it mean to be justified? It would be as if the judge, in the Scott Peterson case, which is right now, as you know, in the penalty phase. Isn't that right? It's in the penalty phase. It would be as if the judge next week would walk into the courtroom on Monday and declare, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, this has been a tough weekend for me. I have been pondering this all weekend long. I know you have found Scott Peterson guilty of taking the life of his wife and their unborn son. I concur. He is indeed guilty. But now, in the penalty phase of this trial, I have made a judicial decision. I am going to acquit Scott Peterson of his heinous crime. I'm going to waive the death sentence against him. And by the way, no sooner do those words get out of the judge's mouth than the whole courtroom is just like electricity. Buzz! What do you mean? What about, the, what about the penalty of the law? What about maintaining justice? The judge slams that gavel back down. Order! Order! I know what you're thinking. I too am committed to upholding the law and maintaining justice. And so I have decided that in pardoning Scott Peterson and in declaring him not guilty, I myself will pay the penalty and I will forfeit my life in his behalf. Slam goes the gavel, court adjourned, and everybody is dismissed. You can imagine the furor and the headlines next week if the judge were to make that pronouncement. What would the headline read? Judge acquits Peterson and offers own life for execution. Now, ladies and gentlemen, as bizarre as that sounds for our contemporary jurisprudence, to justify in the New Testament means to do just that. It means, that, it means for the judge to acquit the guilty, declaring her pardoned and freed from the death sentence. Freed, that is, upon the provision of an innocent substitute dying in place of the condemned. In this case, the judge himself dying for the condemned. 
Read it again, verse 23, Romans 3, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Justified. An old, dusty theological term for a stunning truth. In fact, write it in, please, in the study guide. All sinners are deservedly accused. All right? All sinners are deservedly accused, but all sinners are undeservedly acquitted. See? All have sinned, but all have been justified. All have been accused. Now all have been acquitted by His grace. On what basis? We read it just a moment ago. Verse 24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I.e., at Calvary, the judge bore the death sentence for the entire human race. Jot it down, please. God can justify all because He paid the price for all. Then, does that mean, you say, Dwight, come on now, time out. Does that mean then that all will be saved? You know what? I wish with all my heart that that is exactly what that would mean. There are people today who embrace the teaching That declares, in the end, God decides to save the whole, the entire human race. The name of that teaching is called universalism. Write it in, please. It's called universalism. Universalism declares that the whole human race, past, past, present, and future, gets saved in the end. That would include Hitler. That would include Stalin. That would include Paul Pott and Scott Peterson and you and me. And I wish it were true. Somehow in my heart of hearts, I have to believe that God in heaven today wishes it could be true as well. Don't you think God would want it to be true? Come on. I mean, if you were a father and they were your children, wouldn't you wish for every child you have to be saved in the end? I was talking with a dad just this last week of a student here at Andrews University. A dad whose heart is broken over some of the choices this student is now making. I want to tell you something. There isn't a parent alive who doesn't know the, know the meaning of that. And you, the day will come when you have kids and you will know as well. God knows all about a longing to save every single one of his children. If anybody in the universe would like to believe in universalism, it would have to be Almighty God himself. In fact, the Bible teaches a form of universalism. I, I, I want you to jot uh, a few missing words down. I'm going to give you a series of texts. How many of these are there? Six? Six texts? Let me just fire these off. They're in your study guide. They're right there. You don't even have to look them up. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Here we go. We have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all. All men and women. Write the word all in, please. Then if, you just, if we were right there, we could go back one page. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. God our Savior who wants all men and women to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Then you go a little farther. You'll come to Titus. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. How's it read? The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men and women. Look at this. Same author, Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. Three. Count them. Three of them here. We are convinced that one died for all. And therefore all died. And he died for all. 
You think that's just a New Testament truth? Go back to Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22. How's it read? Turn to me and be saved. All you ends of the earth. God himself speaking. And Peter says, hey, wait a minute. Don't forget me. I have something to say. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all, all should come to repentance. The Bible teaches a universalism. In fact, write this in, please. The Bible teaches salvation's universal provision. All right? Write it in. The Bible teaches salvation's universal provision, but not salvation's universal acceptance. Keep writing. Keep writing. God acquits all, but not all accept Him. And that's why God will not... Ladies and gentlemen, save the entire human race. You know why? Because He values our freedom to choose. That's why. Come on, it's the nature of love. Have you been in love? The reality of love is that in order for love to be love, it has to not only give you the right to say yes, it must give you the right to also say no. Isn't that right? Hence, divorce courts today and broken hearts. Why? Because love can't be forced. If love is forced, it's not called love. It's called rape. way love is. And so God will not people heaven with people who don't want to be there. You think about it. For for people who have spent their whole lives worshiping themselves, you think about it. It would kill them to force them to live in a place where all intelligent life forms find their greatest joy in denying self and living for others. It would kill them. Reminds me of the vision of hell and heaven granted once to a man who wondered the difference. The angel said, I'm taking you to hell first. So the man went with the angel to hell. What was hell? It was a room with a table heaped high. Whoa! With the most delectable and mouth-watering foods you have ever seen or tasted or smelled. But the occupants of hell, he saw them, emaciated and starving, were weeping around that table because they had been given four-foot forks just long enough to prevent them from getting the food into their own mouths. And so they starved. The angel said, all right, that's hell. Now let me take you to heaven. Up to heaven they go. And what is heaven? Heaven is a room with a table heaped high with the most delectable and mouth-watering food you've ever seen, tasted, or smelled. And the occupants of heaven, he looked at them, well-fed and healthy, were laughing around the table because they'd all been given four-foot forks with which they were each serving the one beside him. And they lived forever and ever. Those who have chosen self as God will not be forced to be saved. For them, heaven would be hell and it would kill them anyway. So God acquits, but not all accept him. He acquits all and he honors their refusal. Which is why we noted a few weeks ago in Romans, just uh, Romans actually teaches two kinds of justification. Keep your keep your pen going here. Romans 3.24, which we just read, describes a universal justification. Write it in, please. A justification by grace. Hmm? We just read it. But if you go down to Romans, Romans uh, 3, verse 26, just a couple verses down, and it says God justifies those who have faith in Christ Jesus. Romans also teaches a personal, not a universal now, but a personal justification by faith. 
write in the word faith. Because not everyone that God acquits accepts. In fact, I wish you'd take a look at one of those uh, all, one of the all texts we, we noted just a moment ago. Back to that 1 Timothy 4 verse 10 text. Let's put it up in the New Living Translation. Paul writing here, we work hard and suffer much in order that people will believe the truth. Here we go. For our hope is in the living God who is the Savior of all people. Would you write it in, please? That's universal. Just put the abbreviation J by G. Huh? Just put J by G. That's universal justification by grace. The whole human race. But notice Paul says, I want to tell you about another justification as well. Our hope is in the living God who is the Savior of all people. Universal justification by grace. And now notice, and particularly of those who believe. Personal. Write it in, please. J by F. J by F. Jesus is the universal Savior. Hallelujah. But he becomes the personal Savior of those who cry out to him. Lord, you've got to save me. Justification by grace. Keep, keep your pen going. Justification by grace. The provision for all who are born. If you are born on the human race, born into the human race, you are born acquitted. All right. Justification by grace. The provision for all who are born. Justification by faith. The promise for all who believe and are born again. See? It's that second birth that births you into eternal life. So what's that have to do? What's that have to do with the, with the judgment of Scott Peterson and you and me? Everything. Everything. Because everything Scott Peterson and you and me ever did that was guilty and wrong, every sin we have ever committed has already been judged. I mean, look at verse 24. We are justified freely, all of us, justified freely by His grace through the redemption of Christ Jesus. Redemption, code word for the cross. Paul's point, please keep writing. The sins of the whole guilty human race were freely pardoned. Write it in, please. They were pardoned at the cross. Every sin you can remember or can no, can no longer recall. And by the way, praise God. God, that there are some sins we can no longer recall. What do you say? Hallelujah. I'd go crazy if I could remember them all. Every sin we remember or cannot remember. Isaiah 53, 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Peter comes along, 1 Peter 2, 24, and Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. And John says, please don't leave me out. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Ladies and gentlemen, are you getting this? A universal Savior who made universal provision for universal salvation from our universal sins. And he did it at Calvary. Okay, quiz time, quiz time, quick, before the finals. One quiz. Question, question. Is Calvary future, present, or past? Answer, past. Which being interpreted means, write it in please, God's judgment on our sins is in the past. Not the future. Which consequently means that the verdict that really matters in the judgment is not in the future, but in the past. Two thousand years past. You say, oh, big deal, Dwight. I want to tell you something. You bet it's a big deal. It's an even bigger deal for us Seventh-day Adventist Christians who might not still yet get it. 
Let me explain. As Seventh-day Adventist Christians, we have placed an emphasis on the pre-Advent judgment of God, and rightly so, given this Bible teaching that has been overlooked or largely ignored by much of Christendom. And in fact, this very quarter, in, in our Sabbath school classes, aren't we studying Daniel, who, the, the prophecy dealing with that very pre-Advent judgment? However, however, as a consequence, we are especially susceptible to the notion, listen now, hold on, the notion that our hopes and our fears and our faith and our security are all hinged upon the final verdict in the heavenly judgment. And because we do not know yet what that final verdict will be, we consequently find ourselves living in a state of, of numinous fear or at least a subconscious insecurity and uncertainty about how we're going to fare when my name gets called in the judgment. Will it be guilty or not guilty? Will I be saved or lost? By the way, we're not alone. Paul the Jew walked the very same pathway. F.F. F. Bruce, the great New Testament scholar, has written these words, put it on the screen for you. Paul's hope before he became a Christian was that by dint of perseverance in observing the law of God, he might at length be pronounced righteous by God when he stood before his judgment seat. End quote. I need you to just, just think logically with, with me for a moment. Please, please. If the verdict comes at the end, come on, then you've got to hope and pray that your life before the end might somehow positively influence, influence the verdict that's going to be made. So what do I do? I become consumed. I become consumed with getting these good works. I've got to get some good deeds. I've got to get some good deeds into the ledger so that when God calls my book up, He'll look at me and say, good boy, good boy. You know what we've done? We have ended up making God into Santa Claus. <laughs> you ever sing that Christmas song? You better watch out. Huh? You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. Now, hold on, hold on. He's making his list and checking it twice. Going to find out who's naughty and nice. Look out. You laugh, but in that little bit of Christmas fable, the verdict comes at the very end. Is God just like Santa Claus? So that you better watch out and hope, 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 hope. He'll make up his mind the right way and you'll get a present in the end. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, if, if that's the way it works, can, can you see the problem? There is no way I will ever in this life be really sure that I've made the grade. I will live with an insecurity. And the good news will be awful for me. As Bruce writes, even if I do the best I can, and the trouble is, I do not always do that. How can I be certain that my best comes within measurable distance of God's requirement? I may hope, but I can never be sure. Then came for Paul the Damascus Road and an encounter with the living Christ and his conversion and his discovery of the everlasting gospel. And it was the gospel. It was the gospel that literally reversed the timing of the verdict in the judgment.
the truth about Jesus and the cross for Paul, he came to realize, in fact, I wish you'd write this in, please. He came to realize that the verdict that matters in life does not come at the end, but rather at the beginning. 2,000 years ago, God pronounced His judgment upon the sins of the human race in the death of Jesus. Way back in the beginning, 2,000 years ago, God brought down His gavel and declared the entire human race acquitted, justified, pardoned. So that whosoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Ladies and gentlemen, it's called the everlasting gospel. The everlasting, the always lasting good news that the verdict that matters in the final judgment is not in the ending. It's in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Christmas is a reminder that the verdict has already been rendered in the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's called the Gospel. And it's why Seventh-day Adventist Christians need no longer be uncertain of the pre-Advent judgment that the Bible does teach. Because the verdict for me that matters has already been rendered 2,000 years ago on the old rugged cross. It's called the Gospel. It's what the book of Romans is all about in the beginning and in the end. And it's why, by the way, Paul lived so free and so freely in Christ Jesus. For I know, I know, I know whom I believed and am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed to him until that day when he comes. Let the judgment, I tell you what, let the judgment be concluded tonight. No, let the judgment be concluded tomorrow. Let it be concluded in a hundred years. Let it be concluded in a thousand years. It does not matter. The verdict that counts is not at the end. It's in the beginning. The beginning. The cross. It's called the gospel. A beginning, by the way, that began in a wooden manger. A beginning that ended on a wooden cross. It's the Christmas story that reminds us we have nothing to fear for the future except that we forget that the final judgment does not come down to a verdict in the ending. It comes down to the verdict in the beginning. I want to tell you something. You make Christ. Seriously. You make Christ your beginning every day of your life. And you will never fear the ending again. I want you to bow your head, please. My friend Bradley Kruger is going to sing a beautiful song. There will be three stanzas to it. When he gets to that third stanza of this Christmas carol, pray the words, please, with him.